Well, good evening. I know why Jonathan asked me to preach on Memorial Day weekend, because he didn't want to waste one of his sermons on a small crowd, and I think that's very wise. I think that's very, very wise. Um, so for those of you who don't know, if you're new, I am not the regular preacher, but uh, I'm preaching actually for the second time. Second time I've had the privilege of preaching at Cornerstone, second time I've ever had the privilege of preaching. So, you know, you can give me some grace, and we'll see how it goes from there. The last time I preached, I preached on two verses out of the book of John. It was a sermon on love. It really wasn't that daunting. Even though it was my first sermon, it was a subject I was passionate about. It was something I had, I felt some basis of of knowledge about. And, you know, it wasn't that hard to prepare, I didn't feel like. This time, by God's providence, I'm given Genesis chapter 4. And as I tried to read the text over and over and hope something would just jump off the page at me, it started to become a little daunting to try to preach this. And then I realized kind of an amazing thing, although I think it happens with every passage of the Bible if you look hard enough, but the fact is that these two uh, passages really aren't that different. They're a little bit related. So let me see if the clicker works here. screen's not on back there, so I'll try not to turn around and look every time, but that's what I want to do. So the title of this sermon is The Post-Fall Pattern and the Human Reaction. The last time that I spoke, my big idea was loving others is the true mark of a Christian. And what kind of jumped out of the pages at me as a potential big idea out of this text, not the only big idea, but one, was that hurting others is the true mark of a fallen human. So you can see there's a little juxtaposition there. So when we hurt people, we shouldn't despair. That's our, that's our sin nature. But we know that the true mark of a Christian is loving others. So now that I knew that the passages had some relation, I suddenly had this glimmer of hope, and I thought, you know what, maybe I can do this. And I started pushing forward. And as I looked at Genesis, I noticed that there was a pattern developing. Now, I didn't notice this all on my own. I have a couple of books on Genesis from some seminary classes and a couple of good commentaries, but there's a real pattern that you can see if you read chapter 3 through 11, and the pattern is this. First, there's sin. Something goes wrong. Somebody breaks God's commands. God comes and gives a judgment speech. God offers a token of grace, and finally, God executes the judgment. I want to backtrack just a little bit and look at chapter 3, which Jonathan preached on last week. And in chapter 3, here's what happened. There was sin. Adam and Eve ate the forbidden fruit, and the serpent, his sin was deceiving Eve. He knew the truth. God comes and gives a judgment speech. Remember, he pronounces curses on Adam, on Eve, and on the serpent. Then God offers a token of grace. You might remember when God was coming into the garden and they could hear him, they hid. And they said they were ashamed or afraid because of their nakedness. And the reason they did that was because their eyes had been opened. So God, hearing them, he offered them a token of grace. He made for them clothes out of animal skins, which is also the first sacrifice in the Bible. And then finally, after that, he executes the judgment. They are expelled from the Garden of Eden. 
we see in chapter 4 a similar thing. Anthony was nice enough to read it for us. And we see in chapter 4 the same pattern happen. Sin. Cain kills Abel. God comes in and he gives a judgment speech. He pronounces curses on Cain. He gives a token of grace. If you remember in the reading, and we'll dive into it more, Cain was afraid that once he was driven out, he was going to be killed. So God has some grace there and gives him a mark so that he won't be killed. And then finally, God executes the judgment. And Cain is sent out to wander. And not only sent out from that land, but sent out from God's presence, it says. If you look further on, you'll see the same exact pattern happen three more times. I think God knows that we are not that smart. It takes us a little while to pick up on things. So you'll see this repeated with the sons of God and the daughters of men, with the flood, the story of Noah and the flood, and finally the Tower of Babel. And I don't know exactly how much we'll get into those as we continue our series on Genesis, but certainly uh, nobody will be upset if you read ahead. And what I'd like to do now, now that we've kind of established that pattern, and I will revisit that at the end, because I think it's hugely important that we notice that pattern, we're going to dive into the scripture that is for today, Genesis chapter 4. Before I do that, let me take a moment and pray. Heavenly Father, we believe that all scripture is God-breathed, and that it's all useful for teaching us, for rebuking us, for correcting us, and for growing us in godliness. And Lord, I admit that this passage was a little daunting to dive into, but yet, Lord, I am so blessed that your Holy Spirit did reveal some things, and Lord, I just pray that you would speak through me to reveal those things to the people that are here today. Lord, may it be a message that brings us hope even though we're focusing so much on the problem of sin and judgment. Lord, I just pray that you would be honored and glorified. And I ask these things in the name of our risen Savior, Jesus. Amen. So let's look at uh, verses 1 through 5. I'm going to read them quickly. Adam made love to his wife Eve, and she became pregnant and gave birth to Cain. She said, with the help of the Lord, I have brought forth a man. Later, she gave birth to his brother Abel. Now Abel kept flocks, and Cain worked the soil. In the course of time, Cain brought some of the fruits of the soil as an offering to the Lord. And Abel also brought an offering, fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. The Lord looked with favor on Abel and his offering, but on Cain and his offering, he did not look with favor. So Cain was very angry, and his face was downcast. The story moves pretty quickly, as is the case in Genesis a lot. We come right out of the fall, and, and bam, they have two sons. And in the next verse, they're, they're grown, and they're, you know, farming and, and shepherding and, you know, forming their own relationship with God. And we see them bring a sacrifice. And we learn that Cain is a farmer, and we learn that he brings some of his fruits, or some of the fruits from the soil. We learn that Abel is a shepherd, and that Abel brings fat portions from some of the firstborn of his flock. You know, I found that years ago it was pretty popular to think Abel's sacrifice was accepted and Cain's wasn't because Abel's was a blood sacrifice. But the more I looked into that and the more reading I did on it, it seems that that's not a widely held opinion anymore, that God wasn't favoring it because it was a blood sacrifice. But there is another opinion that started to take shape, that when you look into the text and you read between 
some of the words, you see that Cain brings some of his fruits, while Abel brings the fat portions from the firstborn of his flock. And so people started to think, well, maybe, maybe his sacrifice was acceptable because it was from the firstborn, and it was the fat portions, whereas Cain just brought some of the fruit. But you know what? I, I kept reading about that, too, and I thought, you know, I certainly can't be sure of that. I mean, God doesn't come right out and say that. And if you look in the Old Testament, it actually turns out that grain offerings were common, and that oftentimes the first grain, the first harvest, went to the priests, and it was actually some of the later fruits from the soil that went to God. So, you know, offering him some of the fruits, if it wasn't the first, isn't necessarily a problem, I don't think. So it led me to believe that maybe there's something deeper here. Maybe it's a heart issue or an attitude issue that Cain has, that Abel doesn't have. We don't really know. God doesn't tell us. And I think that that caused me to believe that the point of this passage, the main point of this passage is not why was one sacrifice acceptable and one not, but how was Cain going to react once he found out that his sacrifice was not acceptable to God? How was he going to react is the important part. And I think if we pick up in verses 6 and 7, we'll start to see how Cain reacts. I'm going to read 6 and 7 now if you want to follow along. Then the Lord said to Cain, Why are you so angry? Why is your face downcast? If you do what is right, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what's right, sin is crouching at your door. It desires to have you, but you must rule over it. When I look at this passage, it seems clear to me that although I don't know what was wrong with Cain's sacrifice, God thinks that he does because he tells him, if you do what's right, will you not be accepted? It seems plain to me that Cain probably knows what he did wrong and he could fix it, but that isn't the way that Cain decided to go. We know that. The other thing that's interesting here is that God then says, but if you don't do what's right, he says, sin is going to be crouching outside your door. And I'm not a Hebrew scholar, but some of the books I was looking at said that the word used for sin there was the same word that was used in the ancient Near East and in the Mesopotamia for a demon that was thought to ambush its attackers. It would hide maybe outside your door, maybe behind a tree or a boulder. It would crouch and it would wait for somebody to walk by and it would jump on them. And so... Cain would have a very real understanding of what God was saying here when he said that if you don't do what's right, sin is going to be crouching, ready to pounce on you. I'm not keeping up with my clicker, sorry. <laughs> I think we're caught up now. The other thing that I thought was interesting when I read this verse is when it says, it, sin, desires to have you, but you must rule over it. It looked very familiar. And when we jump back to chapter 3, we see that in 3.16, the second half of that verse, God says to Eve, your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. And then he says to Cain in 4.7, second half of that verse, sin desires to have you, but you must rule over it. So it's very, very similar verses with just a little change on the pronoun. And when I was reading about that, I found that the word desire there, the Hebrew word that's used, is only used three times in the Bible. Genesis 3.16, Genesis 4.7, and then in Song of Solomon. Uh, I think it's 7.10. 
I don't have that written down. But these, this word really could be translated not just desire, but dominate. Your desire will be to dominate your husband, but he will rule over you. Sin desires to dominate you, but you must rule over it. I think this is a very apt warning, not just for Cain, but for us. And that's really where I think the text wants us to go. It wants us to say, what happens when we are faced with a decision and we decide we need to do right, we need to fix it, and how does that affect our life? Or if we decide to do wrong and not fix it, and we give in to sin. I think it's very applicable today. In Psalms chapter 4, I found a passage that I just thought, man, it seemed like David might have written this right after he read Genesis chapter 4. <laughs> he says, be angry. Cain was angry. Be angry and do not sin. Ponder in your own hearts on your beds and be silent. And he says, offer right sacrifices and put your trust in the Lord. I mean, this is what Cain needed to do. Cain needed to go ahead and be angry. But do not sin. Think about what's going on. Search his own heart. Be silent. Then go and offer a right sacrifice. Put his trust in the Lord. But we know that doing what's right and doing what's wrong is tough. We talked about it before. The mark of a true Christian is loving others as God loves them. The mark of a fallen human is sin, is hurting other people. Paul knew this quite well. We're not going to dive into Romans 7, but if you want to jot that down, that's a great chapter to read. As Paul talks about the battle between his sin nature and his desire to do what God wants him to do. You see, even Paul, who was a Pharisee, who became one of the greatest missionaries, one of the founders of the early church, he still struggled every day with what he knew he should do, but what his desires would creep up in his, in his heart, in his mind, from his sin nature. Paul's epistles... If you look at them, every single one of them ends with either a plea for people to pursue righteousness or to flee from sin. He knew how important it was, the same message that God gave to Cain. And it's the same message for us today. We must flee from evil and we must pursue righteousness. When you see this next picture, some of you are going to know exactly what it is. Some of you are going to have no idea, and maybe it's a little blurry. But that's a picture of Nancy Kerrigan. And in 1994, she was the United States' best figure skater. She was a gold medal favorite heading into the Winter Olympics. But on January 6th, she was attacked after she finished a practice, just the day before the U.S. championships. Somebody came in. They snuck into the practice arena. They hit her with a baton on the knee and snuck back out. At that point, they didn't know who it was. She went. She was taken to the hospital. The doctor examined her. And the doctor, his quote was that the attack appeared calculated. He was clearly trying to debilitate her. Well, it turns out, those of us who know the story, the people who perpetrated the crime were Tanya Harding and her bodyguard, and her husband. See, they felt that her best chance to make the U.S. Olympic team was not by working hard, was not by doing what was right, but by taking out her best competitor, getting her out of the way. And I think that's human nature. 
I hear so many times stories of rumors starting in schools or in workplaces because, well, that person was just too good. They were just too attractive. They had it all together. Somebody had to bring them down a notch. So people spread rumors about them. It happens all the time. We see people complaining that somebody is slow, but when you're slow, you're just being thorough. We see complaints that people are cutting corners. They're cheating. But when you cut corners, it's probably because you're busy. We're so hard on other people, and we're so forgiving on ourselves. And I think Cain maybe had a little bit of the mindset of Tanya Harding in that maybe if I get Abel out of the way, maybe if he's not around, God will really like my sacrifices. If he's not there showing off with his great sacrifices, maybe God will like mine better. Totally the wrong way to go. Cain turns his anger against his brother. Now we know that it's human nature to blame others. We know it's human nature to be envious of others, to lie to cover up what we've done, to lie to make ourselves look better, to drag others into our mess. And it's human nature, our sin nature, to hurt other people. It's the true mark of fallen humans to hurt each other. Why is it that jealousy and envy abound when we perceive that somebody is better than us or that somebody is accepted? Why is it that we're not happy for people when they get a promotion or they get accepted to a school or they become a starter on the sports team they were trying out for? Why is it that we sit in envy? Why is it that we can't be happy for them? Well, it's our human nature. Cain felt Abel was showing him up and he decided he wanted to take care of that. Let's look at verses 8 and 9. Now Cain said to his brother Abel, let's go out to the field. While they were in the field, Cain attacked his brother Abel and killed him. Then the Lord said to Cain, where is your brother Abel? Now I've heard it said a lot, and I've seen it written a lot, that the first sin after the fall was murder, or fratricide, often it's written. But I'm not sure about that, because I think that Cain let envy take control of his heart. He let bitterness rule. He let rage replace his anger. And those are all things, as we look through scriptures, that are sin. That all happened, I think, before he actually carried out the murder. And so, you know, it reminds me of the sermon that Anthony preached, actually, where the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus threw everything on his head and said, I'm not even talking about actually killing somebody. If you hate them, then you're guilty of murder. It was such a, a vivid illustration with Anthony standing up here with the placards on. And, you know, we need to really believe that. We are evil. We have evil rooted into us from the fall. We are born that way. We have that sin nature. And it is incumbent on us to flee from sin and to pursue righteousness. So let's look at the remainder of our passage, and then I want to get back to that pattern that we talked about at the beginning. Picking up in verse 10, the Lord said, What have you done? Listen, your brother's blood cries out to me from the ground. And now you're under a curse and driven from the ground, which opened its mouth to receive your brother's blood from your hand. When you work the ground, it will no longer yield its crops for you. You will be a restless wanderer on the earth. Cain said to the Lord, My punishment is more than I can bear. Today you are driving me from the land, and I will be hidden from your presence. I will be a restless wanderer on the earth, and whoever finds me will kill me. But the Lord said to him, Not so. Anyone who kills Cain will suffer vengeance seven times over. And then the Lord put a mark on Cain so that no one who found him would kill him. 
So Cain went out from the Lord's presence and lived in the land of Nod, east of Eden. I just want to point out one more time the similarities that we see between chapter 3 and chapter 4. And I think they're worth pointing out because, you know, I don't think God repeats himself so that we miss it. I think he repeats himself so that maybe we'll catch it. And when he comes in, in both chapters 3 and chapters 4, he talks to Eve and he talks to Cain. He says, what have you done? It's kind of interesting that God does that because God knows what they've done. But it shows us something about God. It shows us that he wants communication. He wants relationship. He wants to offer a chance for us to take stock and ownership for what we did. He wants us to be people who are responsible. He doesn't want us to lie. He doesn't want us to blame other people. But that's what we see in both passages. We went over it last week. In this passage, he also cursed the ground, made it hard for Adam to toil. In chapter 3 and in chapter 4, he cursed the ground and said that Cain would not be able to get any food from it. And then we also see that his judgment on them was similar. He expelled Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden, and he expels Cain even further away, and it says, from his presence. So, like Cain, I think, if we're honest with ourselves, we don't want to do what's right. It's not our nature. We don't want to make things right when we screw up, when we violate God's law. But if we don't, sin's going to be crouching at our door. When I preached on love in November, I said that the only way we can love like God loves is to abide in Christ. I use John chapter 15, the vine and the branches, to illustrate that. And I think that's still true in this sermon. But I want to look at a different passage. I want to see what Paul has to say. And if we look at Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 through 14, Paul really nails it on the head. And I want you to think as we read through this, what is he telling us to do? What is he telling us to do? What action should we be taking? Taking. Since then, you have been raised with Christ. Set your heart on things above where Christ is. Seated at the right hand of God, set your minds on things above, not on earthly things. For you died, and your life is now hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with him in glory. Put to death, therefore, whatever belongs to your earthly nature, sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desires, and greed, which is idolatry. Because of these, the wrath of God is coming. You used to walk in these ways, in the life you once lived, but now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Do not lie to each other, since you have taken off your old self with its practices. And you have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of the Creator. Here there is no Jew, or sorry, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another. If any of you has a grievance against someone, forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love, 
which binds them all together in perfect unity. As I looked at that passage, I think there's four things that we're told to do. We are told to abide in Christ, same as Jesus told us, abiding in him in John 15. We're told that we need to put sin to death. We're told that we need to pursue righteousness, and we're told we need to love one another. These are actions. These are not passive things. These are things that we need to do. We need to take an active role in working these things out. If we don't, sin's going to be crouching at our door. Sin will take the action. Sin is ready to pounce. We must abide. We must be ready to battle. We must be ready to pursue. And we must be ready to love. So, if hurting others is the true mark of a fallen human, and if loving others is the true mark of a Christian, what does that really mean? How do these two natures work? Well, we know how they work. And we looked at the pattern. I want to get back to that. The post-fall pattern that we see. The pattern has changed, though, and that makes a big, big difference. The pattern that we read in Genesis chapter 3 through 11, the pattern that God repeats five times with those stories that he wants us to understand, he wants us to know, has been changed. So let's review it really quickly. First part of the pattern is sin. Well, that still happens today, all the time, by all of us. God still pronounces judgment. We know that. God still offers grace. And God still wants to execute a judgment. But the pattern has changed. And here's how it's changed. Sin, well, I already said this. We all fall short. Every single one of us says in Romans chapter 3 that we all sin and fall short of the glory of God. God gives a judgment speech. Well, Romans 6.23 says the wages of sin is death. So if we know we're sinners and we know what the penalty is, what happens then? Well, thankfully there's step three. God gives grace. I got rid of the token of because I don't think Jesus' sacrifice is really a token of grace. It is grace in its fullness. God sent Jesus as an atoning sacrifice, Romans 3.25. And finally, step four, God executes the judgment. God's judgment and wrath was poured out on Jesus. And those who put their faith in Christ are saved. Romans 5, 9. I was really excited to see Anthony incorporate that into the service because that's really the key. And this, my friends, is the good news. This is the gospel message. The pattern has changed because of Christ. I'm going to move to the next slide, hopefully. And you can see that the pattern is really broken. Step four is done. It's checked off. There are now only three steps to this pattern for Christians. We sin all the time. We don't want to, but it's our sin nature. God has pronounced judgment. We know that. But thankfully, God gave us grace. And Jesus took on that punishment for us. He took on all of it on the cross at one time. And it says in Romans 8.1 that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And so that's a tremendous blessing for us to not be 
living in the time of Genesis, but to be living today where we only have three steps because Christ already did the fourth one. Because you know what? Like us, I'm sorry, like Cain, the punishment that God hands out, like Cain said, is too much for us to bear. And you don't want to be separated from God. You don't want to be driven out and separated from him for eternity, which is truly, in many ways, the definition of hell, being separated from God for all eternity. We want to be in his presence for all of eternity. And Jesus has made that possible. So the question is, knowing the post-fall pattern and the human reaction, what is your reaction knowing what Jesus has done, that he's taken that fourth step, that he's completed it, he's checked that box, we don't have to do it. All we have to do is accept grace when we sin. It sounds so easy, but yet there's so many people out there that aren't doing it. It sounds so simple, but it's profoundly hard in many ways. If you're sitting here tonight and you don't understand what it means that Christ paid all that punishment for you and that because of that you can live under grace and that you don't have to be separated from God, I would encourage you to not let even another day go by. Come talk to me. Talk with Jonathan. Talk with Anthony. Talk with Pat or Amanda who are up here singing. There's no time like today to take advantage of the gift that God has given us, that grace that he has offered. It's more than just a token, and it's for anyone who's willing to accept it. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we really are in awe and so thankful that we live under the new covenant, under a covenant of grace, of mercy, of your abounding love. Lord, we know that we fall short every single day. It's hard to go a couple hours without thinking something bad about somebody else or being envious or jealous, having some hatred rear its head. Lord, we know that you are a holy God and that the wages of our sin have to be death. We know that you can't have sin in your presence. And Lord, we thank you for sending Jesus to take that punishment, to be the atoning sacrifice for our sins. That he loved us so much, even when we were still sinners, when we were enemies of yours and of his, that he came and he died that terrible death. And more than that, felt the separation from you and then beat death itself so that we can live under a new pattern a pattern that step four is finished, that it's completed, that it was done for us because we can't bear that punishment. It is too much for us. Lord, we thank you for taking that punishment for us. And we pray that as we go, we would live in light of that, that that would make us want to love others rather than hurt others. And when we see that we're doing it wrong, may we take action. May we not wait for sin to pounce on us, but may we work to abide in you May we work to pursue righteousness and things that are good. May we work to put to death sin and flee from all of those evil things. And finally, may we love in light of the love that you've given us. May we forgive in light of the forgiveness that you've given us. And may we share grace in light of the grace that you've given us. 
Amen.